I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Seen on Radio is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Season 5 is made possible in part by listeners who supported our show and by a grant from the International Women's Media Foundation. Hello. Hello, John. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. John, we've made a lot of big-picture statements about the colonizing, extracting, and polluting West, or Global North, if you prefer. Mm -hmm. And, And it's true. The richest, most industrialized countries created the climate crisis. The U.S. and Western Europe, joined recently by China... But those countries are not all the same in their share of the blame or, crucially, in their efforts to change. Yeah, the United Kingdom gave birth to the Industrial Revolution and, by some estimates, is the third biggest historic emitter after the U.S. and China. But the U.K. can make a decent claim now to being a leader, relatively, (laughs) among the historic polluters in pivoting away from fossil fuels, or promising to. Yeah, the promise is really important there. (laughs) The UK was the first nation to put a required reduction of greenhouse gas emissions into law with its Climate Change Act of 2008. That was huge. It is closing lots of coal-fired power plants and promising to phase them out completely by 2035. And it is building some of the world's biggest offshore wind farms. Britain says it's reduced emissions by 44 percent since 1990. And it set the most ambitious target of any major economy, aiming to cut emissions by two thirds by the end of this decade. Before our UK listeners get too chuffed, (laughs) climate experts say no nation is moving fast enough, including Britain, The analysts who put out the Climate Change Performance Index, for example, have left the top three places blank in their last several rankings to signify that no country deserves a gold, silver, or even a bronze medal. Mm. Uh, Nobody's doing what's necessary to hit the target of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. But that same ranking, which the Climate Action Network puts together with a couple of other groups, did rank the UK high, fourth out of the 61 emitter countries it examined, behind three Scandinavian nations. The US, meanwhile, comes in near the bottom, number 55 out of 61. Wow. Scotland, that country within a country, has set more ambitious goals than the United Kingdom that it's part of. Scotland is trying to get to net zero emissions by 2045. And unlike many countries aiming for net zero, Scotland promises to get there with real emissions cuts. 
not using offsets like paying for renewables in other countries or planting trees while it keeps on spewing greenhouse gases. In 2020, Scotland's renewable energy industry said it produced the equivalent of 97% of the country's total electricity use. But Scotland and the UK still have some big choices to make. Yeah, for a long time, the Scottish economy depended heavily on oil. The oil and gas industry still employs tens of thousands of Scots. And even now, the country is weighing whether to allow new drilling in big oil fields offshore. That's an outrage to climate campaigners. Uh, we're going to talk more about that later. The question is, how quickly will Scotland be willing to cut off that flow of fossil fuels and money? From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, this is Seen on Radio, Season 5, The Repair, Episode 8. I'm John Bewin. I'm Amy Westervelt. This time, one of the northern European countries that's taking the climate emergency relatively seriously, at least compared with some other large emitters we could mention. To a lot of us, the transition that the world has to make now from a fossil fuel-based economy to one powered by renewables can seem really abstract. Either way, we hit the switch and the lights come on. But producer Victoria MacArthur takes us to a small Scottish Highland town where that transition is changing almost everything. The name of the town is Nig. It means notch in Gaelic. It's just a tiny notch on the northeast coast of Scotland, jutting out into a North Sea inlet. That's all there was to it, for most of the town's history, says artist Sue Jane Taylor. The site of Nig itself, it was the most beautiful sand dunes and sandy beach. My older brother and sisters remember going over with my mother and father in the passenger boat to have picnics, and that's what the local people did in the sand dunes. With the windswept beauty, the local people dealt with isolation and limited life choices. Veteran ferry boat skipper Ronald Young remembers. So what would your options have been, you know, like at that point in time in this area? Fishing, farming, the forestry, emigration, or join one of the armed forces. That, that, that was, I think that was what you had then. Until oil. The town lies alongside the Cromarty Firth, 16 miles of deep, sheltered water that provides direct access to the oil fields of the North Sea. Starting in the 1970s, giant pumping machinery built in Nig generated energy security for the United Kingdom and delivered more money than anyone in the town had ever seen. Because we were working 12-hour shifts at least six days a week. We never got to the bank to cash the cheques. That's my uncle, Ken. He got a job at the fabrication plant in his early days. A lot of people felt that they need to spend their wages on a weekly basis. So they would say, I don't know what to buy this week. I always remember one young lad saying to me, um, I don't know what to buy this week. It's either a windsurfer or a computer. What do you think? My Aunt Maggie met Uncle Ken, her future husband, at the NIG assembly plant. Her job, keeping track of documentation for its American and British parent companies, 
kicked off a career that took her around the world. It was really fun. <laughs> I loved it. You know, because it was it was such a good environment. And there was lots of people all day. There was Americans, there was Liverpudlians, there was Glaswegians, there was people from Wick. And it was great. Great times at the plant didn't just change life for the people who worked there. The rush to extract oil and gas made the UK billions and billions of pounds, says economic historian Ewan Gibbs. They're making a phenomenal contribution to the British budget. You're talking about 5% of GDP, something like 10% of uh, the budget. You know, the UK state's uh, tax take was, was coming out of North Sea oil and gas. Let's rewind to hear how all this got started. In 1970, British Petroleum, BP, discovered a giant oil reserve. It was below the seabed, 100 miles off the northeast coast of Scotland. The question was, how to get to it? The company chose NIG for its geography, not its manpower. Back then, as now, the population barely scraped 200 people. Its port, though, was a perfect place to produce oil rigs, or jackets, as people here call them. American and British engineering companies threw money at new facilities to handle that production and cast a wide net for workers. A university friend of my Uncle Ken's gave him a call. Donald uh, just phoned me and said, come up here because people are literally being dragged off the streets to go and work at the Nig oil yard and the money's pretty good. And I went, sounds fine. So I went. In a 127-acre yard, fabricators built steel platforms more gigantic than any attempted before. These were anchored in the seabed 400 feet down. To get to the oil, the drills had to reach another 8,000 feet below that. Jack Shepherd began at NIG as a welding apprentice on those platforms. The first one that I was involved in was um, the BP Magnus which was one of the biggest um, single floating structures in the world at the time. A 40,000 tonne structure built on land to support a drilling tower a thousand feet high, all in the service of extracting from a major new oil field 350 miles offshore. Northern Scotland, northern Norway. Midway between, 125 miles from Shetland, a new British oil field. This is a BP promotional video from 1991. Although in 15 years the North Sea has yielded many oil fields, none has been so far north, so deep down, so costly to bring on stream. A vast project, its size echoed by its name, Magnus. It took a lot of engineering know-how to make that happen. On land, Nig faced other logistical challenges. You know, we were a pretty idyllic, rural, remote almost, in the 70s. With brushes, paint and pencils, artist Sue Jane Taylor has documented the area's half-century transition from the unspoiled countryside of family memory to a centre for industrial assembly yards. Alongside Nick, there was Ardisir, Kishorn, and Arnish on the Isle of Lewis. And when these yards came, 
you know, you were talking about 5,000 men, up to 5,000 men in each of these yards, suddenly turning up, looking for work from all over. The tiny towns couldn't house them all. Prison ships were brought in alongside the pier near Neg. People were sleeping in caravans, tents. People were taking them in uh, as well, lodgings. Um, It was... uh, really was a sort of gold rush feel to it. Jack Shepherd was a teenager when he started at NIG in the late 70s. He worked there on and off for almost 40 years. Pretty much every village roundabout became larger because NIG had a catchment area. I think it was a radius of, it's a 25 mile radius as the crow flies. There's probably nowhere in the Highland region Maybe the far-flung corners, which didn't have somebody or someone with a connection to working at NIG. Some employees gathered each day in Cromarty, the slightly larger town across the inlet. Ronald Young piloted the ferry. We are standing here, looking out at the sea, looking directly across from uh, Cromarty to NIG, and this is a route that you know extremely well. well yeah, yeah. Been the skipper of the ferry between Cromarty and Nig for 28 years so 28 years ago we were very busy taking the, the workforce to the yard for the oil industry back and forth. Shifts starting at half six in the morning, back shifts coming home at three in the morning. So roughly about 44 crossings a day. Every 15 minutes we're going back and forth. The companies paid for those ferry crossings, bus transportation, amusements for the town's children and more. Producing the biggest drilling platforms ever built, Ronald says, was worth all that. I mean, if you took the product of oil out of the whole equation, what you could refer it to as Europe's answer to NASA. I mean, yes, we weren't launching rockets into space, but the magnitude of what was going on was in similar terms. To build something of 34,000 tonnes and nail it to the seabed and... You know, 50 years later, it's, it's, it's still there and still working. So it was a huge, huge, as far as the whole of Europe is concerned, it was a massive project, massive. Jack Shepherd, the former welder, harbours a bit of nostalgia for the effort. Nothing in this country will ever be built like that ever again. That's because the abundant oil and gas couldn't last. And didn't. Eventually, the mighty machinery taps out the easiest wells to reach. Ewan Gibbs, the historian, says the benefits of exploration and drilling didn't last either. I think there is a very just case for arguing that oil and gas resources potential were not realised in Scotland and that they were mismanaged by the corporate forces that dominated the industry and also by British government policy, which promoted the swift extraction of resources, incentivising that extraction to be as quickly as possible in order to pay off the balance of payments deficit and to pay off national debt. Necessity forced Scotland to explore untapped energy sources as never before. In the early 70s, the UK economy was a mess. The government at Westminster spent oil profits as quickly as they were made. Many other oil-rich countries set up sovereign wealth funds to create lasting benefits. This didn't happen in the UK, so the benefits were less visible to regular people, and arguably, less lasting. 
The shift to oil was yet another chapter for a country that's pioneered energy innovations since James Watt modified the steam engine. I'm not sure I could have foreseen the dramatic changes that we have seen, and particularly the, the takeoff of renewables, which are now economically competitive. In 2013, when Ewan Gibbs began his work towards a PhD, Britain still derived close to one-third of its electricity from coal. He studies the social effects of transitions like the one Nick is going through. Well, I think there have been some really important achievements in environmental terms. I think the fact that Scotland now produces something like its entire electricity output through low-carbon sources is really, really significant. Although there's also then questions about other areas of Scotland's emissions, um, emissions that arise from gas heating, for instance, and also the fact that Scotland is arguably an increasingly car-dependent, suburbanised society. So there's big questions there, actually, about other sources of emissions. There's a huge boom right now in out-of-town developments to tackle the housing crisis. But as Ewan says, it's in conflict with our climate goals as it forces people to use their cars. There are still a lot of hurdles in our move away from fossil fuels. In the town of Nig, the end of the oil and gas heyday began when the American engineering company sold its share to its UK-based partner. That company went after the oil that remained and kept the equipment in repair. When the assembly yard lost a contract, everything would stop. And it went on like this for years. Times of great industriousness interspersed with absolute standstill. Jack is self-employed now. He works in health and safety. Only some of his work is involved with oil. Like many people I spoke with, he says that fossil fuels played an important role in the region's past. We joined that industry at a time where the UK economy was benefiting greatly um, from the work that was being done. So, it, yeah, it was good to be part of it at the time. And it's just a, a cycle of life, you know. Ewan Gibbs appreciates why many people who remain in NIG regard that time fondly. It's understandable why they feel attached to those sectors that's provided that, and which, which has provided them also with a status in the national imaginary. When we think about Scotland's economy, we think about oil and gas. Um, I think renewables are interesting in that respect. That on the one hand, they renewables are not only interesting; they're attracting investment. In 2000, three years after a major refurbishment, NIG very nearly closed its gates for good. Roy McGregor kept that from happening. Here's skipper and harbour master Ronald Young. It's become a, an assembly uh, point now for uh, offshore wind turbines, so we're on to our third wind farm at the moment. Um, I think the first wind farm was 60 to 80 jackets and towers and turbines were all um, shipped into NIG, assembled and then taken out to the field. Uh, Mary East was around 100 and this is the, the sea green wind farm now which is about 120 jackets. Roy McGregor is a local. He started his career at the yard, arriving straight out of college to help recruit some of the first people to work there. In 2005 he formed a global energy group and in 2011 he bought the derelict yard at NIG 
and began its slow transformation into a hub for renewable energy. Now, the site is largely a service point for wind turbines. We call them jackets. They're um, steel towers that sit on the seabed with probably the top fifth sticking out, which a wind turbine gets connected to. They're around 1,900, 2,000 tonnes each. So they're all shipped here from China and the UAE, assembled in uh, NIG and then get towed out by barge out to the field and planked on the seabed. It's not the oil boom. Only about 200 people work assembling the wind turbine platforms. But the guys that are employed there, a lot of them, learnt their trades from NIG in the oil industry. So there's a a knock-on effect that when one trade dies, which is the oil industry, a new one comes up. The University of Glasgow's Ewan Gibbs. You know, the fabrication yard that NIG is now being used for something again. Uh, it's true, it's... NIG is not necessarily at the centre of the construction of wind turbines by any stretch is quite important. It is a place ultimately where components are put together. Now that's a beachhead that could be built on um, if the right policies were put in place. A movement called Just Transition may determine some of those policies for NIG and all of Scotland. It's based on the idea that, unlike the UK's previous energy revolutions, this time we'll try to take communities and workers into consideration. Ewan Gibbs says trade unionists in the US developed the concept during the 1970s. Workers had a right to economic security and they had a right to use the skills that they developed in those fossil fuel sectors. But they had a right to do so in a context where they were making a contribution to an environmentally sustainable society and economy. And that's the basic idea of a just transition. In Scotland, it's a term which has now got effectively government seal of approval. What that will mean in practice is still open to debate. No matter what happens next, ferry captain Ronald Young says the earlier boom left an indelible mark. What it's done for the area, I mean, it, it, it didn't drag us into the 20th century, it shot us in there like a rocket quite fast. We got drunk and reckless off the proceeds of oil. Now, it's last orders. My Aunt Maggie, whose job at NIG ended in the 80s, enjoyed the race for oil and gas while it lasted. It wasn't a project that was going to last forever. Everybody's um, idea was we have to get, you know, actually out there and, and get the oil production going. So everybody knew it wasn't going to last a long time. And that was probably part of the, part of the, the, the whole deal. Hey, Victoria, thank you for taking us to the Highlands and the Scottish coast. Vic, I love that image. Last call or last orders, as you'd say at the pub in Scotland. Time to close off the tap and leave that oil where it is, under the North Sea. But you've really highlighted the fact that for some people in, in lots of places in the world, Scotland included, the fossil fuel industry has been a way of life and a livelihood. And that it's important to consider those people, not to use them in bad faith, pretending to care about them and their jobs as leverage to prop up an industry that needs to go away for the well-being of the whole planet. But yes, to genuinely support these working people and help them transition to different jobs, including in the burgeoning renewable energy industries. That's what people mean by a just transition, which the economist Ewan Gibbs mentioned in the piece. There's work to do in figuring out how to make that a reality exactly. 
But training and opportunities are key. And many people I spoke to who have worked in oil or still do agree that renewables are the future. I think it's a reassuring sign of the times that Greenpeace and Friends of Earth are two of the biggest champions of oil workers who want to do something different. That's super interesting because a similar thing is happening in the U.S. where environmental groups are really talking about and looking at how to help oil workers. Um, And here the oil companies like to trot out oil workers who have lost jobs as a result of some kind of environmental policy as their big argument for not doing anything about oil and not changing anything. There's been some resistance from workers, too, though, here. And I I don't know if you've seen this in Scotland, too, but there's some resistance around not wanting to retrain or there's sometimes hang-ups about finding properly masculine replacement jobs for workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a thing. Yep. But the reality is that the industry here, at least, doesn't look after workers at all. I mean, the fossil fuel industry worldwide had the most workers exposed and sick with COVID-19 because they refused to improve conditions on offshore rigs or at pipeline camps. And they actually were hiding those numbers and not reporting them for quite a while, too. And then, you know, companies have been embracing automation for years, which is laying off thousands of workers. They only really seem to care about workers when they're useful props at press conferences. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I feel that we have some similar issues over here in Scotland. Um, And the real hope here is that Scotland can pull this off and make the end of oil a little bit more dignified than its beginnings. But we're not there yet. We're still dragging the oil industry with us as we push towards those ambitious net zero goals. If we get it right, maybe we can show the world how to make a successful transition to a green energy system. Right now, the UK government is considering whether to grant a license to energy companies to open a huge new oil field in the North Sea, the Cambo Field. Right, Vic? The Scottish leadership hadn't made its position clear on this, but as we record this in November 2021, the Scottish First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has just made an important statement. She has. She has just stated categorically that she does not believe Campbell should be drilled. So this is a big step forward because she's previously been accused of sitting on the fence with her opinion on this matter. Um, The Campbell field is northwest of the Shetland Islands and in very deep water. It was discovered almost 20 years ago. And the main company looking to drill there says the field could deliver 170 million barrels of oil over a 25-year lifespan. Mm. It's the kind of project that the government has routinely approved for decades and decades. Uh, But yes, given the state of a climate emergency today, the idea of opening a new field for 25 years of drilling strikes many people as outrageous. Not to mention... Mm. Very hypocritical, as Scotland and the UK claim to be leaders on climate action. People are watching this very closely and pressuring the government to leave that oil under the sea. Mm. In Scotland's case, Vic, the question of how aggressively to pivot away from oil has ramifications for that long-running debate about whether to declare independence from the UK, right? Yeah, it's very tied up with our politics. So a lot of your listeners might remember that Scots held an independence referendum in 2014. The majority voted no, but it was close. It was roughly 55 to 45%. The UK's Brexit vote, 
in 2016 helped to ignite a push for a second referendum. A strong majority of people in Scotland oppose Brexit and want to be part of the European Union. So those oil reserves in the North Sea had given Scots confidence that they could declare independence and have an economic foundation. If we hold another referendum, we can't underpin economic independence with oil anymore. So green jobs are viewed as a key part of Scotland's future. I think the challenge is building resilience into the renewables industry and making sure that communities see tangible, lasting benefits. That's so interesting. As we record this, the world's eyes have been on Glasgow and Scotland and the COP26 climate summit, at least the eyes of everyone worried about the climate crisis. How has that all looked from Scotland itself? Do you think having this kind of big deal conference in your country has had a particular impact on the debate there? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of excitement with the delegates coming from all over the world. And I mean, certainly like on a local level, it's been crazy. But um, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but I, I think there's disappointment that we didn't commit to more ambitious targets in terms of oil and gas. That's really been the big question for us in Scotland. There were more delegates from the fossil fuel industry than any other single country at COP26, which is pretty shocking yeah. when you think about it um, they're not going to get off the stage if we keep giving them the microphone and at the moment the oil industry are particularly embedded still you know into our politics and decision making so that's never going to change um, the way things are currently Thank you Victoria MacArthur Amy any parting words? You know, this reminds me of something that happened just before the COP in Glasgow, which was a, a TED event in Edinburgh where Scottish activist Lauren MacDonald, she's part of the Stop Cambo group, was sharing a stage with Shell CEO Ben Van Bearden. And she was, let's just say, not having it. So, Mr. Van Bearden, I just want to start by saying that you should be absolutely ashamed of yourself for the devastation... <laughs> For the devastation that you have caused to communities all over the world. Already, you are responsible for so much death and suffering. I'm not even going to appeal to you to change, because I know that that would be a wasted opportunity. What I do want to say is that every single day that you fail to stop making evil decisions is a day that the death toll of the climate crisis rises. You are one of the most responsible people for this crisis in the world, and the in my view, that makes you one of the most evil people in the world. No matter what he says today, remember, Shell has spent millions covering up the warnings from climate scientists, braving politicians and even paying soldiers to kill Nigerian activists fighting against them. All whilst rebranding to make it look as though they care and that they have the intention of changing. Disproportionately, in the global south, so many people are already dying due to issues related to the climate crisis, such as pollution, extreme heat, and weather-related disasters. This is not an abstract issue, and you are directly responsible for those deaths. Lauren, do you I also seriously, have a question? I, I'm just getting to my question now. So, um, so yeah, there was this big uproar uh, from Lauren and her fellow activists about 
oil executives being invited to this big climate event in the first place. And I think she's right. You know, fossil fuel executives have been embedded in the COP process since the beginning. And that's probably why it hasn't worked. Uh, you know, I think they need to be they've had a seat at the table for decades. And what they've done with it is flip the table over and throw chairs at us. You know? So I think that um, they've, they've shown themselves to not really be capable of, of negotiating on this stuff in good faith. And I think that we should look at that evidence and boot them out. Next time, Amy explores a strategy that people are trying in several places around the world to address ecological crises and to protect the planet, an approach that brings indigenous values into the law. Victoria MacArthur reported and wrote her piece from NIG with additional writing by Cheryl Duvall, who is also our stellar script editor for season five. Production and sound design by me. Music in this episode by Lily Hayden, Kim Carroll, Chris Westlake, Leslie Barber, Cora Mirren, and Matar. Music consulting by Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. We post transcripts on our website, seenonradio.org. The show is distributed by PRX and comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. So... I heard this story, I didn't see it with my own eyes, but I heard this story that in Aberdeen, where it was kind of a self-appointed oil capital of Europe at the time. I mean, you could see the money when you were in a city. Um, when the first oil crash happened, there was a piece of graffiti that appeared in the city centre and it said, Dear God, give us another oil boom. Next time you won't piss it up against a wall. That to me is like the most Scottish bit of graffiti <laughs> ever. <laughs> but yeah, it says it all.